Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Well, good morning. I am Hannah Heather and I am so pleased to be with you this morning and to be finishing out our series all about Contagious Hope. And we've been thinking in this series all about evangelism, right? About the importance of sharing the good news of Jesus with those around us. And today, as we close this series, we're going to be thinking about credible lives. In 1 Peter, we read this line, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And what I want us to think about this morning is... We may be ready to give an answer, but are our lives provoking the question? Is the lifestyle that I lead causing people to pay attention? Is it provocative? Does it cause people to wonder about us? Is it puzzling and perplexing and different and distinct and pointing in such a different direction to everyone else that the question simply has to be asked? What is the reason for this hope that you have? What is the reason that you're joyful right now in the midst of all that you're going through? What is the reason for this crazy act of generosity that you've just poured out on me? What's the reason that you're always cooking double portions of dinner and have all these random characters showing up at your house for meals? What is the reason for your hope? Why are you like this? And so the question I want to think about today is, are our lives really provoking that question? Or if we're really honest, is it actually kind of hard to tell the difference between me and every other sort of mum in her 30s? Do I look and walk and talk the same way every other person who works in the city does? Is my worldview and my morality basically the same as other students on my campus? Or does my hope mean that I walk and talk differently, set apart, in the world, but not of the world? Graham Tomlin says this, The church's first task is not actually evangelism or just getting the words right, but displaying the life of the kingdom in its own life and community, which in turn will provoke the questions that lead to effective evangelism. So what kind of life would really provoke the question? I remember when I was a student studying for my undergrad and, um, and we ran a 24-7 prayer room right in the centre of our campus. And I have this really clear memory of being out with friends at uni, out at a party, and then it would get to like 1am and I'd suddenly realise oh, I've got a prayer slot booked in the prayer room. And so I would be leaving the party saying, sorry, I've got to go to get to the prayer room and this was such an odd thing to do right why would you leave a party at 1am to walk into a cold church in the middle of the night but it was so weird that people would often say to me what are you doing and can I come with you (laughs) because 
they obviously saw there's something in there. There's something in that cold church at 1am that's causing you to live in a, such a way that you would make that decision. And it's attractive and it's interesting and it's fascinating. They kind of got Sunday morning church, but like 1am Saturday night, this is a whole different ball game. Are our lives provoking those questions? And so we're going to dig deep this morning into the book of 1 Peter. So starting firstly at 1 Peter 2, reading verses 11 to 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then next chapter, 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Live as foreigners and exiles, Peter says. Our first clue to the kind of lives that attract the question is that it is the lifestyle of foreigners and exiles. It's noticeably different because when we make the decision to follow Jesus, our understanding of the world, how it works, how best to live here, that all begins to change shape because of what theologians call the eschatological vision that Jesus gives us. And really simply, that just means the vision of the future kingdom that Jesus began, that we're all now a part of, and that one day will become the ultimate reality, the new creation. Because we know that kingdom, our lives kind of ought to be in tension with this kingdom that we live in. As foreigners and exiles, Peter says, in other words, as people living the lifestyle appropriate for a different place, a different kingdom, a different king. Our obedience to Jesus as king means our lives have to take on a really different shape. One of neighbourly love, self-sacrifice, laying down our lives for the other, radical generosity, distinctive purity. One by one, Jesus kind of begins to reframe our worldview and our lifestyles as we follow in his footsteps. I want to read you this really tragic quote from a journalist. I think if you were watching online last week, I think Tim Hughes shared the same quote. And it's this journalist who's an atheist, but he's writing about a certain kind of celebrity style church culture. And he says this, I am not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should or should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyles and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Michael Green is an Oxford scholar writing about the early church and he reckons that 80% or more of evangelism in the very early church was done simply by ordinary Christians who were just explaining their life 
to friends, family, people around them asking, why have you done that? Like, what is the reason behind that decision that you've made? Living lives in such a way that people were drawn to the goodness, the beauty of their lives. They couldn't help but ask the question. Do people ever ask you why? This distinctiveness marked out the early church. And as we know from history, it caught the attention of Rome and ultimately involved the persecution and martyrdom of thousands, potentially millions of people. These early Christians lived so differently that the powers of the day were threatened, so threatened that they tried to crush this religion by hunting down and mercilessly killing these early Christians. Tom Holland, the historian, says this, Distinctiveness in the age of an empire that claimed itself universal might well rank as defiance. This life of the exile is a defiant one because if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. If Jesus is Lord, then money is not. If Jesus is Lord, then sexual freedom and permissiveness is not. If Jesus is Lord, then my possessions are not. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. A theologian called Sitzer said, in short, Rome tolerated religious diversity as long as the real religion of Rome was honored, which was Rome itself. I don't know if that sounds at all familiar when you think about our world today. So the distinctiveness of the early church, this living as foreigners and exiles caused mass persecution. But of course, the crazy thing is at the same time that the Christians were being literally killed and dragged through the streets for their faith, people just couldn't get enough and they wanted to join. The church grew and flourished because these people lived lives that they came at odds with society. They were distinctive, but their lifestyles were so genuine and so attractive and so clearly authentic. You don't die for a lie, right? <coughs> and so people were so intrigued by this little movement that it began to take off and spread across the globe. And a huge part of this was the lifestyle that they were living because you couldn't just show up to a Sunday morning worship service, right? And kind of check it out. Like, what's this whole Christian thing about? Like their worship services had to be really hidden and underground because, you know, people were trying to kill them. So they wouldn't meet publicly oftentimes. And so rather than people being able to come and experience their preaching and see their worship services, what they had to do was look at their lives. Look at the lives that they lived in the public sphere. How did they manage their money? What did they do about politics, about marriage, about sex, about family? People could see the lifestyle of the church that was so different and it, and it drew them to the Christians. It drew them to this new religion. Dear friends, Peter says, as foreigners and exiles live such good lives among them. Live in such a way or to put it in New Testament language, bear witness. In Acts 1, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And a witness really simply is someone who sees or experiences something really important and then tells people about it. I heard uh, John Mark Homer say recently, we are not salespeople, we're witnesses. 
right? We're not going around trying to sort of peddle our wares and our goods and sell something to people. We're people who are here to say, this is what has happened to me. This is what I've experienced. And I'm here to bear witness to that with my life and my speech and my whole world, the way in which I make all my decisions. And the word for martyr actually comes from the ancient Greek word for witness, for this very reason. It's not a coincidence. And I know that for you and I, we're not likely to be martyred in this same way that the early church was. This kind of physical persecution is unlikely for us. But I do think that without a doubt, this foreign lifestyle that we're called to lead is one of sacrifice and self-denial. It is costly. There are deaths involved. Are we willing to pay that price? To allow our reputation, our power, our sense of security, whatever it might be, to be put to death. Paul says, I think about all those things that once captivated me and compared to this hope, to Jesus, to truly knowing him, and following him, I consider all these things, what the NIV translates as rubbish. The Greek word is skibalon. It's actually a really, um, it's actually a kind of a swear word that Paul uses there. And I'm going to say it means feces so that you get what I'm trying to say. Paul says that's, that is what I consider all this stuff to be. All the stuff that I was so fascinated with and fixated with before I met Jesus, I put it all to death. I consider it rubbish. I flush it down the toilet compared to this hope that I've found. Are we willing to live the uniquely attractive and compelling and distinct and sacrificial life of the foreigner? The witness. John Wesley says, I set myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. As we put our lives on the altar, people around us begin to sit up and pay attention. They can't help it. And of course, this allegiance to another kingdom and another king is also an allegiance to a new family. The Bible says that we're born again into faith and we're born into a new family. We're baptized into the spirit and born into the church. We become brothers and sisters with one another, a community of faith who are uniquely committed to one another. And to be honest, this is often the thing that I'm most often asked about. When people who don't know Jesus, when they ask me about my life, it's often connected to our life as a church together, to this community life that, they lead, that we lead. We, they see us um, supporting one another and the way we love one another and bring meals to one another and like help raise each other's kids and all the dimensions of life and community. And I think that's profoundly attractive to a world that honestly is really isolated and increasingly lonely. This is why coming back together to church on a Sunday is so important. It's why praying together, praying for one another is so important. Docking in with a collective, eating together, right? The way of the kingdom, it's not this isolated, insulated academic exercise. It's like the messy, colorful, joyful, tearful at times life together in family. 
And so how does this distinct community of foreigners and exiles live? Well, firstly, under the lordship of Christ. Peter says in chapter three, <coughs> in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And then in chapter two, he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So the lordship of Christ means abstaining from sinful desires. It means living by a different moral standard, not allowing our sexual ethics or our personal purity to be shaped by and modelled for us by the world around us, but rather by what this book lays out for us. All of it comes under the lordship of what Jesus says about how we ought to live our lives. And so living under the lordship of Christ means committing to lifestyles of purity, to abstaining from sinful desires, which Peter says wage war against your soul, right? They cause us to wage war, like to be at war within ourselves. Do you want to flourish? Do you want internal peace? Do you want your soul to not feel like a battleground? Take another look at what the Lordship of Christ might mean for your personal purity, right? For your commitment to spiritual discipline. God has set you free from all the sin of your past, but he also empowers you to wage war on the power of sin as you step into your future. And this causes people to sit up and pay attention. Like, how can you live this way? How can you live with this kind of purity. So the Lordship of Christ is number one. Secondly, doing good deeds. Live such good lives, Paul sa- uh, Peter says, sorry, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Live such good lives. The word good here is kalas in Greek, and it means beautiful, compelling, One translation even has shapely. It's this this sense that live a life that is good. It is beautiful to look at. It's remarkably attractive and compelling. The gospel compels us to live in this way that is radically generous and committed to others. We're called to look after and serve those among us who need care. We're called to give away our possessions to help others. We're called to hospitality, to opening up our hearts and lives to others. And and that's really our heritage from the early church. You know, the first ever hospitals came into existence because they were started by the early Christians. It could be argued that the very concept of human rights can be derived from the early church. The idea that is so strong in scripture of the strong taking responsibility for the weak. This idea was a blow to the very foundations of Roman society, totally countercultural and yet so beautiful, compelling and attractive. There's numerous accounts of the church living in this way, in such a way that they expose the lack of care from the state. I've talked a lot about this in the past, but there were practices like the the killing of babies. If people had children that they didn't want, they would simply leave them in the street to be exposed to the elements and to die. And the early Christians, because one, they had a value for the sanctity of human life, and two, they had a shared pool of resources. 
So they had enough, they would actually adopt these children, take them into the life of the community and raise them as their own. And so we hear loads of accounts of early historians um, talking about the practices of the Christians. And it was one of the reasons that Rome got so cross and began to persecute them was that they were exposing all the gaps in the welfare of the state. This community of believers lived in such a way that they weren't afraid. They weren't afraid to open up their homes or live lives of such profound sacrificial generosity. And I think this was really challenging to a society and a leadership of brutally competitive, success-driven models of living. Again, maybe that sounds familiar to our world today. And the call on us is the same, to loosen that grip on our possessions and, and live without fear and to live with the freedom to share. I'm always challenged by this quote from Gregory Boyd who says this, in the kingdom, we can't consider anything we legally own or any money we legally earn to be our possessions. They belong to God, and as such, we are called to seek his will as to how our wealth should be spent. It's like profoundly challenging words. When it comes to my possessions, it's not that I can't have things in my hands, but it's am I willing for this to pass on to someone else's hands the moment that God asks me to do so. And Peter's language here of good deeds is a direct echo of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, we read this. <coughs> you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are called to live lives that shine, that are incredibly bright, attractive and compelling to everyone around us. Lives that provoke the question, why? D.L. Moody says this, we're told to let our light shine and if it does, we don't need to tell anybody that it does. Lighthouses don't fire cannons to call attention to their shining, they just shine. In evangelism, there are times to start conversations and issue invitations, but there is always a call to shine, to be distinct, to be dangerously attractive in a broken and hurting world. And the thing that empowers and enables us to do that is the indwelling of the spirit working within us. And third and finally, our lives are distinctive because they are marked by hope. The hope that we have in Jesus is robust and it allows us to live in a radical, different way. What I believe in my heart about the future totally redefines how I live today. And with Jesus, we always have a reason for sure and certain hope. Hope that Jesus has saved me, hope that he is saving me and hope that he is going to return to make all things new. And so whatever trials and tribulations I face now, my response to them will be different because I know the end of the story, because I know hope. 
I hesitate to use a petrol related metaphor <laughs> right now in these times that we are living in. But hope really truly is that, it's that fuel source, it's that power source that propels us into these credible, attractive lives because hope dispels fear. And oftentimes we don't act generously or we don't live with purity because we're afraid. Like, what if I won't have enough? What if I'm gonna miss out? Those are all questions that come from fear. But when we have hope, we know that we're okay. And it liberates us, it frees us to live these credible alternative lifestyles. This is how those early Christians could be so bold and firm in their faith, despite the terrifying like persecution that they were facing. They knew hope in the person of Jesus. And this gave them courage to remain steadfast in their faith under the pressures of Rome. Hope is not some kind of wishful thinking, right? Some sort of like wishy-washy little thing that Christians like to talk about and that we like to put on sort of fridge magnets. It's radically countercultural. Hope gets in the face of the empire and it says, you know what? There's another way to live. There's another way than the way of mammon, right? The way of consumerism, this way of life, which is all about take all you can get and spend all you can and use what you can and enjoy it while you can. Hope gets right in the face of those things and says, there's actually another way to do life because of the resurrection of the dead, because of the kingdom that is coming. Because this isn't all there is. <laughs> there is so much more coming because of the indwelling of the Spirit, because Jesus is alive and the empire of Rome has not won and will not win. Hope knows. There's so much more than this. So hope is dangerous. It's dangerous to empires that exist on trapping people in consumerism. It's dangerous to political systems that fear the outsider, the refugee, because hope lives without fear. It's dangerous in the face of the empires of this world. Hope says, I have enough. I have more than enough. Hope says, my neighbor is my priority. Hope says, no one needs to go hungry on my watch. Hope refuses to bow to fear, but always goes lower to serve because hope knows there's always so much more available. We are called to live in such a way that our lives beg the question, what is the reason for the hope that you have? How might we, as we go into this next week, live a life that begs that question? And are you ready to give an answer for that hope that you have? I'd love to pray for us as we finish this time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. God, we thank you that we have this incredible calling to be the light of the world, to shine that all the world might see that you are real, that you have risen, and that hope is alive. And I pray right now for everyone listening to this word this morning, would you help us to truly live as foreigners and exiles in this world. Would you mark us with your hope, God? Would you change us forever with your message of hope? In Jesus' name, amen.